This episode of Lightning Strikes Thrice is brought to you by our incredible patrons, patrons like Christian Finkbeiner and John. If you want to help us keep making the show like they do, you can visit pitchdrop.cash and contribute as little as a buck a month. We really appreciate it. You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, the JRPG Games Club podcast that knows celibacy makes the strongest wizards. This is episode <laughs> seven. This is <laughs> this is season seven, episode ten, covering Labyrinthos in Xenosaga episode two for the PS2. I'm almost free of saying that other part. I am your host, Chris Taylor, and my pronouns are he, him, and with me today is Sybil Arnett, she, her, Ryan Beatty, they, them. Someone tell me what happened last episode. Our party were galactic vector eats couriers for days on end until finally <laughs> they remembered the entire reason Albedo unsealed Old Milsha in the first place. The original Zohar was slumbering on the planet. Landing and making their way through the ruins of the city from the introduction, we left off with the crew disembarking from their ESs and diving into the sewers to attempt to plumb the towering labyrinthos. So, <laughs> this is... This is the second sewer of this game, and it's also funny because, like, Labyrinthos and second mil- sorry, and old Milsha is basically like a sewer planet at this point. So everything is wet. Mm-hmm. This is yet another puzzle dungeon, and it's a smart move to ha- include so many puzzle dungeons in this game because it's one of the ways that the game is is less bad. So. The very first room is just like an open switch to progress thing, and then the second room is another elementary school math puzzle as you uh, have to do some more, like, elevator weight stuff. Yeah, yeah. Your goal is to get the water, which is purple in this game, to balance out a at a level of zero across the whole thing so that the paths are not underwater and you can walk over them. I like this one. Yeah, because this is made by Space Umbrella and not actually a city utility company. There is no automated balancer, of course, and so you have to manually press a series of buttons that raise the water only on specific sides by X degrees. And then if you go too far, that water level will reset. So you just have to basically figure out the right addition of left and right. Left six, right five, left six... Right to repeat. Yeah, your buttons yeah. are like plus four and sorry, plus five and plus two minus two. It's six left, five and two right. That's it. That's all you have. Oh, yeah. You only have to use the five and two. That makes it very easy. Yeah. A little bit later, the place is absolutely covered in. Oh, my God. This is so fucking funny. Like we go through these tunnels and Someone in the party is like, wait, is this the nanomachines making rooms in Labyrinthos and passageways of their own? 
sorry, Xion, thank you. Xion asks uh, if there are if there are nanomachines making rooms and passageways on their own, and then is like, no, there has to be some consciousness making this. Junior's like, it's Udu. I know that it's Udu because I'm a URTV. I have a special connection to this Udu. And the manifestation of Udu's mind at work is just some fucking cobwebs. It's so, just sparkly-ass cobwebs. But some of them are magic. Yeah, uh, and then... You know, you can still use the explode button to blow up the Udu influence, which is fucking great. But it doesn't work on the two erect cobwebs. Right. Yeah, they have to be saggy. Yep. Yeah. One thing I will say is that one of the blessings of this game's uh, no random encounters rule is you won't get blindsided in the middle of a puzzle, which makes the puzzle dungeon parts less obnoxious. Than- Except for this one, where when you blow up a spider web several times, there's a guy immediately behind it who rushes you instantly. Okay, but that's different <laughs> than like running into enemies on like a, the water level oh, puzzle sure. or, or something like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I'm only specifically reacting to the fact you said blindsided. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. After this little section, the Resident Evil comparisons continue as uh, you take an underground train to get to the actual tower labyrinthos proper. Mm-hmm. And then we continue towards the box maze, which I love this. This is a great puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, is no, is this the one with this? No, this is not the one. This one's pretty good. No, this too. is not the this good is one. The this is one. the identical cube room. Yeah. So there's a series of identical ladder. Oh, this one's okay too. Wait, no. This isn't the one where you blow down all the cubes stacked in different directions. I don't remember no, this not. one at all. That's later. This is that room that is nothing but a bunch of glass cubicles with two crates in each. And after and you, you destroy yeah. the second, you see whether or not you can pass forward or not. Uh, and then you go up or down a ladder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes there's like ambushes inside. It just basically requires you blow up everything yeah. until you hit a wall and then drop down and repeat over and over. Oh, oh, this is like the side scrolly presenting one kind of. Yes, it would be a side scroller yes. level. That would, oh, that's fine. I, I always like I like when information is vertically hidden by the camera, like in um in that dungeon in Xenosaga One where you had that big room where you were around the edge of a circle on a series of platforms and ladders. I like that kind of stuff. That's always fun to me. So I think the circle version is the better version of this because it allows you to look ahead and try to plan out with some of the info. This is basically a bad version of some of the 2.5D segments in Nier where the camera has you running through scaffolding and there are occasionally boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And... I feel like because this is such a visually uh, layout repetitive and also very box dense area, the blowing up of the boxes and the ascending and descending ladders, uh, if there was like one more segment of these, it would approach extreme tedium. Uh, As it stands, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to stop blowing up the boxes now, and then it's and then it's over. And that's the that's the strength of the dungeon, and why I think this is the best dungeon in the series so far is that. Every screen, there's different enemies, so every encounter is new and different, and then there's a new puzzle every other one, so like every single room is something different, so even though it's an extremely long dungeon, it doesn't feel extremely long. Yeah. So, like, Mm -hmm. even if you don't like a puzzle, it's over in like 10 minutes and you're onto a new different thing that you might like. Like this next puzzle, which I think is my favorite puzzle. So, Mm -hmm. you go into here... And there's a room of spinning cubes. And as it's laid out, there's walls on each cube and they're blocking your path. And you're looking down at it through glass from the top. And you can press buttons 
to spin different ones. And when one spins, it, if it's it, this, if there's a spot with no wall, touching one that has a wall, it picks it up. So you're moving the walls around to change which paths are blocked and unblocked. And um, there's two treasures in here. One of these is good. It's a boost max. There are no encounters in this, so you can just do it forever, and it's very good. I like it. Mm -hmm. Passing through all of this opens one half of the gate to the elevator below, and uh, now you have to go do another series of rooms to open the other half. First is the gate bridge puzzle, which I hate. It's I hate this is the this is the extremely long one, right? Yeah, this is the vast warehouse sized room. Oh, it takes a long time, even with Cerberum mode. So what's happening is there's um, glowing rectangles, which if lowered, you can cross on them like a bridge from above. And if raised, pass below. And the switches for them are sometimes on the ground and sometimes up above. Uh, it's very annoying. It takes an extremely long time, especially when I got all the way to the end and was like, oh, I missed the treasure chest and now I gotta do it all again. Mm-hmm. The second one is the what uh, Sybil thinks is the most interesting puzzle in here, which is a series of stacked boxes. And when you shoot one from one side, it spreads them all out linearly in the other direction to build a path. And the goal is to knock them over in a way that you can make a bridge across the room to progress. What's, what I think is sick about this is that the solution to get the puzzle does not also block the solution to getting to the exit. So you can do it all in one mm -hmm. go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would play a an entire, like, short length indie game of these puzzles honestly uh i really i really like the concept behind this puzzle and again really does not overstay its welcome feels interesting and then you move on have you heard of Catherine? uh huh? <laughs> sure have uh, look so you can play the non-problematic version of it inside of it is that little <laughs> arcade machine <laughs> There's someone on this team who is very good at designing little, fun, interactive logic puzzles. I've talked mm. Sugar about it for our entire two seasons. I can't wait for y'all to see Hackocks, and I really want them to make someone clone that game. Make it. Make it so I can pay you for it. Please. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, because uh, like, if the little puzzle rooms... Uh, and interesting things like that continue into a game that is also overall better, uh, that'll be sick. Mm -hmm. When we finish this room, we open the second half of the elevator gate, which thankfully there are elevators down to the main floor on each side. Imagine if there weren't. Mm -hmm. Immediately would ruin the dungeon. We can uh, we unlo fully unlock the gate to the main elevator and can go downward. Uh, love this tactically placed save point, by the way, here. So after each branch, you can fully top off. Honestly, this place is probably more full of save points than it needs to be. And you know what? That makes it good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to gripe. I used that. But it's one of those things that's like, what is the challenge intended to be through this game? Because I think every second room in Labyrinthos has one. I think. This is where they sort of come around to being more Final Fantasy 13e, where you're almost at full after each battle, so each battle is tuned to be difficult. Mm -hmm. Because this is like a cathedral ship-length dungeon, but with a million save points, and the main purpose of the save points here is to fully top you off because you're heading into another section of a bunch of very difficult encounters. 
Uh, right. And you're going also, into them blind because they're new guys. So you don't know anything mm-hmm. about them. But because, because you have your whole party at this point, you have like, you know, six full characters, you can use your off party to heal your on party and not waste your, your battle party's uh, ether points. And so you can top yourself off pretty easily without wasting any resources in between battles on your own. Let me tell you something. That never occurred to me until three quarters of the way through this dungeon. I have not <laughs> been doing that the whole time. Amazing. Ouch. Somehow, Chris Taylor missed a way to min-max a video game. <laughs> so at the bottom of that elevator is a chair, which is locked within a giant Rubik's Cube puzzle room that, in same times would probably have a whole team working to unlock it. We're just going to solve this puzzle by running around a bunch, though. And also, Kanan will remind us that he has come along on this trip and that the chair should be able to unlock the data encrypted within him. I don't oh my know god. Why. Oh? <laughs> He's just, like, such a nobody who just, like, hangs out with us he's just hanging around and they didn't even he's not even a battle party member uh he doesn't even yeah, show up I, in extras like alan did yeah he just fucking he just shows up in cutscenes to be like 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 exactly what you said Sybil. just like oh right kanan's here with us still i guess it's fucking stupid oh yeah they made kanan and think he's cool yeah he does actually do things in three and he can be a party member yeah but i'm never gonna use him because he sucks uh, I think cool. you're going to be forced to. No, I know. I know, but he's not cool. Yeah. He's not cool, and I say this as a redhead with no personality. <laughs> so the procedure <laughs> is as follows, and I'm describing this 100% straight because if you're not playing the game, this sounds like I'm making it up, but this is absolutely how this works. Take an elevator up to the top of the chair room. A switch will allow you to raise the room into the air. Take the elevator back down and walk inside the space the room occupied, which is where the lock for the door is toggled. Take the elevator back up and cross the bridge at the top of the room, which is only there for when it's in midair and unlocked. On the other side of the bridge, lower the room again, locking you onto these stairs. Take the stairs down and enter the now-unlocked chair room, which contains one chair that will run 7-zip on Kanan. Oh no, that has arbitrary code execution bugs in it. <laughs> and now get ready for some shit that we, the player, have known since the beginning of the game, where the Space Pope laid it out for us in one of his two cameos. Am I really supposed to know this? I forgot. It, he it, really like, does say a non-zero part of this at the start of the game, but it just all sounds like nonsense because yeah. none of these names have come up. Right, yeah, it all sounds like fucking space nonsense uh, and, and Is proper this noun Margulis? Yeah, the Margulis yeah. scene. Yeah, mm. he he speaks he speaks about it very like encoded. It's very cryptic, but yeah, he says a lot of this shit. But it still this still felt like an info dump of new shit. And honestly, it felt like some shit that uh, definitely clashes with the vision of Joachim Mizrahi that we've seen thus far. And those visions weren't necessarily from like a specifically skewed point of view. So it feels little bit like a retcon but you know it it's not it doesn't feel like a retcon to me what it feels like is that everyone has an incorrect framing of Yoaki Mizrahi based on what happened well the pope 
thinks that. The Pope thinks he's got the real line, but then we've also met Joachim Mizrahi, and it's like, nope, everyone else is actually correct. Huge dickhead trying to ruin everything. <laughs> okay. It's, it's very interesting how everyone has a different perspective on that. Yeah, it is. I guess it still felt to me a little bit disconnected from episode one Mizrahi in a way that that did feel like the writer is kind of trying to pivot a little bit. I, it does, but what I like about that, and it's a thing that Xenosaga 2 has done, and I know it might be like retconny in Xenosaga 2 specifically, this is a problem with how people perceive sequels in general, which is that when we perceive sequelization, we compare it in quality to the previous thing, but not how it adds to accumulative work because we're not experiencing it as a full body of work yet until we're at the end. Mm -hmm. But they carry this kind of perspective thing forward into Xenosaga 3, and it can make it weird, but the person who is talking is never the objective source of truth, mm -hmm. right? It's not like they are speaking as the game telling you what's up. Yeah. Which is weird. Makes it feel like retcons in the moment, but when you get to the end, you're like, oh, that's very interesting. Well, and they don't, they don't really do a very good job of depicting uh, skewed and biased perspectives either, I think is part of why it feels weird, because it feels in the moment, like the game is omnisciently info-dumping stuff at you. Uh, well, I mean, especially because, like, JRPGs usually will, like, if they do an unreliable narrator trick, they'll do a single unreliable narrator instead of, like, a dozen, you know? And I will say this is a flawed execution because the Pope speaks with an air of authority because of his position. So you're just you just expect that what he says is correct because of the way he delivers it. Well, and Jin speaks with an air of the air of authority too, right? Because he's reading the data, right? Which mm -hmm. you expect to be objective. Okay. Yeah. Fair. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, we've prefaced it a bunch. So, as far as the galaxy knows, the Milshin conflict was Professor Joachim Mizrahi's fault when he turned the Utic organization, a subsection of the Federation, into a militant splinter that's been in conflict ever since. This is untrue, and Jin has known it this entire time, he just never said shit about shit to anyone, because conspiracy theorists in Xenosaga world never share their beliefs without a mass of evidence nearby, and we mean, like, actual evidence and not just you know hastily composed documentaries that some lunatic online releases that then become uh huge phenomenons uh 9-11 never forget Yay. watch loose change <clears throat> don't watch loose change honestly watch loose change but then also don't watch loose change you know it's up to um, revision nine <laughs> 11 <laughs> fuck. you can tell a thing is irrelevant because it's made by a person who uses cash <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that in reality utic was a puppet because all of their connections were dummy corporations except for a single one the Hyams group uh whose ceo was heinlein this group who is a galactic arms merchant who are considered the only competition vector industries really has has been funding utic this entire time the way that jen says this he kind of speaks around it in this moment because he's he just like talks about a benefactor, but we know from context clues kind of who it is. And then this is where it is made explicit. So the Hyams group has been funding UTIC this entire time and also is the link to the immigrant fleet or the space Catholics. And so both the immigrant fleet and UTIC are taking orders from Heinlein. 
love to be a foot soldier in a war a shadow war between corporations <laughs> this is shittiest shadow run well yeah it's well really what it is is that like you are embroiled as a, a guy in a game of syndicate yeah yeah and there's there's more of that later we'll come back to that part all right so it turns out through this data that professor mizrahi was not the madman who sicked the gnosis on the entire galaxy but was in fact the only sane man on site and what he did was take an axe to the server room of reality by sealing the whole of Milsha, the Zohar, Udu, and the worst of the chaos away in a pocket dimension and killing himself, then locking the only key to, th- to this inside his digital daughter, Momo. There's a whole extra layer to this that does not come up until the next game, but I want you to all remember this and I'm put a pin in this. this. Because I'm going to bring it up, and it's fucking gold. You should preemptively plan to relitigate all of this, because I will forget. Oh, I will. Yeah. I will, because when something comes out in Game 3, I'm going to recite this bit back to you and just cackle like a witch. Mm. All right. The other big thing that we kind of reveal is that Mizrahi was doing all of these experiments on the Zohar, trying to get to the bottom of some shit, but did not anticipate Udu waking up and did not have anything to do with Udu waking up. Uh, And that was the thing that caused everything to go tits up and made him go, ah, shit, I have to, you know, like, make the horrible decision to sacrifice an entire planet and also myself in order to keep the universe alive because Udu was kind of being woken up by all of the URTV corporation nonsense what what is junior's dad's name again uh yuriev yuriev yes the yuriev institute was up to some shenanigans at the same time stirred udu awake and fucked all of mizrahi's experiments up yeah at this point uh we get subjected to an absolutely awful momo line reading where she just goes daddy i knew it i'm so I'm so happy. Yes. It's so terrible. That's not an exaggeration in the slightest, by the way. Uh, I fucking, I, uh, I hate so much of the voice acting in this game. Not all of it, but some of it, but a lot of it. Anyway, uh, Jin now is going to leave the party to call Helmer with this data, and he urges us to press the button behind the chair that Kanan is in to unlock the B-lock door to go further down the stairs to finally get to the Zohar chamber. Making me very upset because uh, the entire party I have doesn't work without Jin. Oh, no. Because Junior... Momo and Cosmos, not good at breaking and launching, guys. Meaning <laughs> Jin also. Yeah, true. Chaos is a good launcher if you ever need one. No, but his shit is down. It does down. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And yeah. that fucks everything up because Momo does huge damage against guys in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never mind. Ugh. Ugh. This is where and you can't knock up guys who are on the ground, so you can't even go chaos into Cosmos. It sucks. You can't yeah. knock up guys who are on the ground. Chris <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> That's true. Chris Taylor, never seen a guy on the ground looking submissive and breedable. Um, nope. Definitely not. So 
Uh oh, right. At this this is at this point I was using basically the whole party, and so I was able I would just waste turns or use up a turn to swap out a different party member that could launch or down or, you know, do ether damage as necessary. So uh this was fun for me. The reason this made me very upset is this is where I found the way to break the combat system in, mm. in this dungeon. Mm. To the point where Xi'an is doing like three to eight thousand damage a turn. Not Xi'an, um Momo. Momo, Momo is doing three to eight thousand damage a turn if a guy is broken in the air and she's hitting the elemental weakness. Like one shotting those enormous robots. <laughs> Xion is also very good at destroying the robotic parts of this dungeon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But Momo destroys everyone. What is the setup? Let me go look at the... Let me, let me go find this really quick. Mm-hmm. I want to describe this. So Momo is... Everyone at this point has expansion pack, so they have four things, because I have basically been prioritizing all of the background skills, which is why combat has been hard, but now everything came together. So Momo is rocking Ether Burst, Swimsuit, Double Power, which doubles the effect of Ether Burst and Swimsuit, and then EP half. So Momo is doing 200% damage. Weaknesses make you hit for another 50%, which gets doubled, so that's 300%. And then Swimsuit adds another... 15, which is doubled. So she's doing triple damage, hitting a guy in a weakness, plus the multiplier from break, plus the multiplier from them being in the air. And then she's using Ether Spear as her first action and moving behind guys. <laughs> so just obliterating dudes. Like, Margulis is like a seven-round fight. God, and yeah. Cosmos and Jin are the equivalent, but for physical attacking. And they also have all the boost and stock skills. So Momo can still get up to three stock and we can get boost faster while Momo is still doing her setup actions. Mm. So you were extremely mad because you found out how to break the battle system wide open, but uh, you had painted yourself into a corner because you needed Jin to do it. And then they get into the boss where they forcibly give you Jin back. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However... <laughs> I made a note of this below. If your healer is in slot three, eat shit. (laughs) (laughs) Cosmos can heal. It's fine. She doesn't need that uh, EP. (laughs) So at the bottom of the shaft through lock B is a set of three doors with generic uh, enemies. We've been fighting all dungeon behind them, but they are, um, they're in different pods that make the combat encounter much more difficult. This would be considered a gauntlet in other games, except for the fact that save points restore all stats, and there's one right behind the elevator landing pad. Yeah. So you could just heal up after each fight, uh, a thing that did not occur to me. (laughs) There's one incredibly cheap move here. Each of these fights is inside a door you have to manually open where an enemy is standing to guard the path. The final one of these is not mech or gnosis-sized. It's a dipshit in a winter coat who walked out of Shadow Moses. Despite <laughs> the fact that he does not move, trying to run through the massive gap around him will instantly begin the fight. Uh, also, if you open the door and don't run for it, they will aggro, run right up to your face, but you are standing like a pixel outside of their aggro rage, and they'll back up and like, fine, buddy, I got my eye on you. <laughs> Very good.
walking through the last door, begins a cutscene, and motherfucking Margulis is down here. This is also the first time we see what UTIC stands for, as their very 80s computer company logo spells out, Unknown Territory Intervening and Creation. Love to create and then intervene in unknown territory. <laughs> Margulis reminds us that he's a sword mage that would just murder Shion if it wasn't for the bolt of lightning out of the skies. Surprise, Jin is done sending an email and is back. <laughs> Work lunch over. At this point... Despite Jin's sister being front and center here, Margulis sneers that you're still a part of the Suzuki, and then they stop all progression to just have an incredible two-minute sword yeah. fight on the bridge. I timed this. Oh, 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 it's so good. The part where Margulis gets his sword, and then, oh, big good. Um, they get it, to it. Yeah, it's, it's just, okay, so I, I have a running tally of thoughts that I had while all this was happening. The first thing I thought is, oh, wow. Jin and Margulis are anime rivals as anime rivals. Like, they've been anime rivals, but come on. All right, here are some of the things that they say during this sword fight. Uh, one, Jin says, I will not allow a monster like you to inherit my grandfather's technique. Meaning, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they went had to, the same sensei. Yeah, they had the same sensei. Uh, and then Margulis also says, brave words from such a fool, which is... Ah, uh, beautiful. And then the most incredible gin line in the world. I shouldn't have wasted my time running a used bookstore. Just <laughs> the tropes are fucking off the charts and I'm here for it. And also this is where the other half of Xenosaga 2's budget uh, went. The first was the first sword fight. And then this is the second sword fight. Because the animations are so like, they packed so many unique like body rigging animations uh, that are really impressive into this sword fight. Looks so fucking good. Well, it also has whenever Jin is like fighting with Margulis, the um cutscene musical palette is very different and sounds like Metal Gear music. Yes. Like you have those like stuttering woodwinds is an extremely like iconic Metal Gear sound. Yeah. It didn't really strike me uh until this sword fight, how much until this boss fight really, how much Margulis is kind of the like recurring boss of the week that will plague a, like a cartoon season where it's like they have to face off against the same arch villain a few times over the course of the story he just kind of like busts and is like remember i'm the main bad guy uh and then you fight him for a while and then he manages to escape unrelated my hero academia has the best one of these and it's a youtuber <laughs> okay i'll take your it's word inc incredible into it Maybe after we finish Dragon Ball Super, we'll go on to that. Oh, oh, it's so good. We're five episodes and a Broly away. I don't know what a Broly is. That's the movie. Mm -hmm. Also, his, I love that his name can be read as Broly, which is uh, the way I interact with other people. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> very Broly. <laughs> it wasn't very Broly of you, fam. <laughs> I'm also going to say one incredibly cursed thing. This is the point where I realized both of these men are fucking Valsel sword wizards. <laughs> yep. I love that. Oh, they're so good. Like, like I yeah, I, I do not watch a ton of anime generally, like outside of our podcast. So I am not like super exposed to these tropes. So still love it every time they're here. 
Yeah. It is so good to me. They're very fun representations of these tropes too. Like it's it's they they know what the fuck they're going for. And it's one of the times that Xenosaga 2 feels surest of itself. And that's partly why it's so sick. The last time I have seen anything like this was when Roroni Kenshin was releasing. Wow. Uh, so extremely fresh to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is where I had the realization that these two are long-fated rivals, but they are, there is no attraction between these two men. There is <laughs> not going to be any kind of, oh, but do you think they harbor secret feelings? No, they fucking hate each other. Neither <laughs> of them ever wants to have sex because that would lessen their sword techniques. Oh my God. And Jin has been off being a nerd while Margulis has been deciding to become the most Tyler Durden college motherfucker you can imagine. <laughs> also, we have to shout out two things from this scene, one of which is Jin referencing the start of the game going, nice scar, how'd you get that one again? <laughs> <laughs> and the other being the part where Margulis disarms Jin, takes his blade into his offhand, tries to murder him with his own sword, and Jin claps it between two hands, yes! kicks yes! out, and gets his weapon back. Oh, it's uh, so Throw my arms over the air and go, sick. hell yeah, and my wife looks at me like, what the fuck is the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is an exquisite scene, and despite the fact that I did watch this twice and time how long it goes on and holds up the boss fight, it fucking rules. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, putting one of the better boss fights after one of the game's best cutscenes, which is the end of uh, definitely this game's best dungeon. Just like playing all the hits right now in Xenosaga 2, showing us what you're like, the few things that you're good at and that you're really good at, and just making them sh sing. They sing. Uh, love this shit. I was not initially sold on them not making Margulis a pillar man anymore because that was his vibe in Xenosaga 1. Yeah. But way into it. <laughs> I have to point out that they are very fond of this boss battle to the point that this is one of the only ones that appears in the DS game basically unchanged. The, the break mm. mechanic is gone, but he straight up has all of these attacks and gimmicks and everything in the DS fight. Yeah, I cannot wait to find out what these mechanics actually are. <laughs> okay, so here is the boss fight with Margulis. There is one cool bonus and one horrible swerve the instant this fight begins. Uh, Jin has just forced himself into the third party member slot. Again, if that was your healer, get ready for some pain and go reload. Thank you. Yeah. But you're now fighting Margulis in a pincer attack, which means someone can always back attack the dude. And this and, allows... And it's the person in slot two, uh, which is Momo. Oh, get owned. <laughs> All right. So, Steel Awakening 3 here if you want that skill manual. It is a Xion Jin combo tech. It's pretty good. The actual fight. Margulis is a potent sword wizard who can only do who can only be broken with a two-person combo, CBCB. If you want to make this easy on yourself, do the usual buff and burn cycle. Give yourself attacker and ice sword to everyone. Do a launcher combo and elemental chain to get as much of his 21k HP off in one go. If you can't one-cycle him, and you probably can't one-cycle him, get ready for him to pull out a lot of nasty shit. 
Do you know how uh, how much we did? How much? Uh, 20K. Yes, same. I got him down to where he was within three points of his shadow clone. And then I'm just like, just going to kill him right away. Yes. Very easy. Ignore the shadow clone. Owned in the next turn. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I do want to say about the, like, there, there are some, there's another neat little, there are a couple neat little, like, gin plot battle wrinkles that go on throughout the fight. The one kind of annoying one is that if Margulis is facing Jin, uh, then Jin can't add to the combo before, uh, like, to get Margulis to break because Margulis will block or evade any of Jin's head-on attacks. Oh, you know what made me so fucking mad is that I went to kill him on a points turn and then, oh, oh but it wasn't Jin. Big yeah. mad. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, yeah, one of those things is Margulis has an insane evade. He's not scripted to evade Jin stuff head-on. But he just has a huge evade against every standard attack. Oh, wow. That's so funny because none of my other two characters ever got evaded. It was only ever Jin and only ever Jin when he was head on, uh, never back attacking. That's a, oh, it's yeah, very back funny. attacks can't be dodged. Right. Yeah. It's it's because of his stats. Yes. Right. It's, that's, it's, like he is, he is stated to be one of the least accurate party members. I can't remember what stat is shared with. Okay. That it's it's very funny that I thought that it was a scripted thing. So, the first move he has is when he drops below 16k health, he can summon a shadow clone of himself. It's really weak, only 650 HP, but it absorbs all damage save aura, and it can cast Medica on Margulis, giving him an extra 5,000 HP. He will only do this twice, but it will extend the battle if you're unlucky. That's so much. Well, Medica plus fifty percent. Medica is twenty-five. Well, I'm saying, like, but oh, oh, it's not five thousand each. It is five thousand each time it casts Medica. He can only summon the Shadow Clone twice. Sure, sure. But I'm, th- what I'm saying is that plus fifty percent to the boss's total HP of twenty-one. 000. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The worst is that when he drops under seven thousand HP, you need to burn him down. He's going to take four turns and cast Alcala Seal, a move that 100% game-overs the party. You might think this is no problem, except for one little wrinkle. (laughs) Only Jin can land a killing blow in this fight. If anyone who is not Jin knocks off that last one HP, he immediately counter-boosts and uses one of his skills, and this can possibly mean... Oops, he finished Alcala Seal and you lost. Yeah, I, it's very funny. I never was in any amount of danger during this fight. And the Shadow Clone never cast Medica. Neither of them did. I'm not sure how I lucked out. Uh, but I was just, I just thought that this was an extremely fun boss battle because the 7,000 HP threshold i got i got him down to like two thousand and so i only needed another two turns of his four turn thing so real breeze this is very cool i am sad i missed out on all of this now i do need to point out one thing this runs entirely counter to the design we've been griping out the entire game with bosses where if you wait them out long enough in a turtle or a stalemate they turn off their gimmick so you can fight them <laughs> regularly. This is a punishment. If yeah. you've been trying to do that, you just die. <laughs> so 
here's what's here's the thing that really sucks. Like the, the this fight is good because of, but sucks with the game, is that he doesn't have that much more HP than Orgula, mm-hmm. and she did not have that much more HP than Albedo. It's just that the numbers started way too high. Mm. So the boss battles feel better as you go through the game. I don't know if that's going to continue. (laughs) I know. But so far, that's the trend, right? Like each fight feels better and better because you've scaled up to meet the bosses faster than they scale up. Yeah. So like this fight is not that long and feels super good. Well, and you know, the other thing about this boss fight is that it's only one guy and uh, he can't boost fuck you with that many of his moves and attacks. And so and he doesn't d- have dumbass magic arms. Right. And so <laughs> there's less of a uh, there's less of an opportunity for the game's RNG to trip up your rhythm like there are like there are in a couple of the earlier boss battles. It's yeah. still there. There's still a chance, but it's lesser. When you do finally finish this fight, Margulis summons his ES and flies off for an escape, allowing the party to rush into the Zohar containment room. So here feels pretty great, you know? Tone's pretty good. Zohar's just chilling, nothing's on fire, and Junior's response is like, oh, whoa, we made it. Awesome. Oh. Okay, why does he leave without it? Aren't they here for the Zohar? Because and the then Pope he... runs off with it? Yeah, because they're... Oh, that's true. He, yes. Be, okay, okay, because of what happens next. Yes. Right, we yes. don't know that at this time, and so I'm like, why are you leaving? Aren't you here to get this? Well, they're, it's, they're, they're not really leaving, because it's that, like, immediately, Shion sees the two pods, and I was like, wait, oh my god, this is the place. Because, yeah, she's like, uh, what, what does she say? She's... I saw this place in yes. a vision. That's right, that's right. And then she sees these two capsules and Cosmos is like, there are life signs. And everyone uh, reads that it says Cecilia and Catherine, who Shion recognizes as Cecily and Kath, who are Fabronia's twin realians that we were asked to come here to save. And they are looking like little baby Genova monsters a little bit. They're not looking so hot. Their corpses are... Uh, or their 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 bodies that are being forcibly kept alive to kind of contain the Zohar are missing limbs, and half of their face is like completely and totally necrotic, and uh, they just they look real fucking rough. What makes them look grosser is that they're not longer, so they look different from everything else in Xenosaga too, which makes them look even weirder mm-hmm. because they have their Xenosaga one proportions. Yeah, and so Shion has an, just a full-ass breakdown here because, uh, you know, she was she was given a mission from the Collective Unconscious to save these two, and she sees that they're beyond saving, but then Fabronia's ghost shows up Not to yet. be like, oh, really? Okay. Not yet. That's after the Pope is around. Oh, shit, you're right. Okay, okay. Then, well, but then, wait. Because it's it it's Fabronia's ghost that says, No, Shion, please set them free. And that's what that's what Shion uses to tell Cosmos to fire. That's in the next scene. That's not happening yet. Oh okay. the Pope appears before any of that happens. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, um, she just so, collapses here and starts screaming about how bullshit this is. Yes. Uh which honestly, you know, that yeah. Shion Xion's characterization, you know, is a little bit all, 
not all over the place, but it's felt different to Xion from episode one. Uh, and this is kind of her breakdown connects her to episode one Xion for me, where she's just, you know, she she is the emotional core of Xenosaga, and she's one of the only people who reacts profoundly emotionally to like the injustice and pain of realians around her. So of course she's going to see these two realians and just have a full break. And this is like the only time in the entire game her voice acting is good. Yeah. So, okay, here's why I, I, I misread this next thing where Cosmos is like, Cosmos confirms that the two twins are interdependent with the system and removing them both would unleash the Zohar and also kill them. And so then... <laughs> The space pope flicks on a spotlight on top of the Zohar, and he's also chilling on top of the Zohar. And he's like, oh, yeah, they're way easier to work with in this state. Should have seen how messy it was when they were awake. Pope Sergius Seventeenth is such an unrepentant piece of shit in an entirely different, sleazy way compared to Albedo, the other unrepentant piece of shit, and it's a refreshing dirtbag party up in the villain's lounge in this game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, he's like whoever, what was his name? Vane, the Final Fantasy XII guy? He's a lot like that. Yes. Yes. Or uh, Bartandalus. He's a lot like Bartandalus. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, real, real mustache twirling shit right here. So good. Yeah. Because And then Ugh. everybody in the cast who isn't Jin is like, wait, who the fuck is this? And Jin is like, Oh, God, it's the fucking leader of the Space Catholics. What the fuck is he doing here? It's incredible. <laughs> and then Pope Sergius the 17th. Uh, 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 gonna edit the scene so it plays the sax when they reveal his name. Just a sick Sergio <laughs> joke. That's what I think of when I read this now. Uh, Pope Sergius the 17th reveals that he doesn't have to say shit, but I have like 10 minutes to kill. Um, so I'm going to talk to you right now, and uh, the reveal of why he has all this free time is incredible. Yeah. Uh, he says that his, the organization in the shadows this whole time has been called Ormus, which are basically this world's Templars, and their job has been to watch the Zohars, quote, since before the crucifixion. <laughs> yes, the one with Jesus. This is what I clap and go, hell yeah, let's yeah. go. Uh -huh. If you need this spelled out, the immigrant fleet is to Ormus as rank-and-file Catholics are to the people walking around in Nazi gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Shan is just like, fucking, excuse me? No, thank you. And Pope Sergius' reply is like, oh, what the fuck did you say? It just activates the Zohar out of spite. And then Cosmos uh, whips out a gun and has the big, I'll throw a barrel at it energy to solve this problem. <laughs> and Shion's like, no, please. It jumps in front of the gun. And I'm like, bro, weren't you here for the first game? Don't do that. <laughs> Cosmos yeah. does say, uh, I will fire through you. You've seen me do this. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. If only Cosmos didn't look awful yeah. um, in Xenosaga 2. Really, really hurts this. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Brody, it just freezes time again and goes, No, Shion, free my sisters did not mean keep them alive like this. And Shion's like, I can't do this. And then she just gets out of the way and lets Cosmos light them up. Uh, very low accuracy, by the way. Yeah. And, um... <laughs> yeah. We see the ugliest... having the ugliest laugh as a battle android chain guns two children to death and a pope <laughs> sneers on from a... It's so good. 
Oh my uh, god. Uh, yeah. Love it. Black smoke is coming out of their bodies. Uh, Chef fingers everywhere. So, so twisted. It's so funny, dude. It is. It's, is there like, it's a farce. Uh, yes. Listen, I'm using the Ryan Beatty definition of twisted uh, here. <laughs> oh, something awful emoji. Got it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh None of this matters at all, though, because the Space Pope suddenly seals a massive robot around the Zohar, and Jin, once again, the only person who uh, has read the classified briefings, just goes, <laughs> oh, that's Proto-Omega, and uh, we're all like, what is Proto-Omega? And uh, Junior just starts firing his handgun at it. Yeah. I love that the only time Junior shoots at a cutscene in Xenosaga 2 is only at things where it will do literally nothing. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Yep. The Pope laughs, knocks everyone around, and says, I'm going to take this thing, destroy the Gnosis, and roll humanity forever. Peace out, fuckos. And then we cut from the party on their ass to one of the only FMVs in the game. Uh, the Elsa just begins booking it away from Labyrinthos, which luckily we do not have to do a timed escape from, which I would have been big upset at. Oh, yeah. And uh, at first, it's really hard to figure out what's going on um, because of how, like, they cut a lot in this. It's not super well directed. Mm-hmm. So Labyrinthos is collapsing, and lava and fire spread across the surface of Milsha. In space, both the Federation ships and Utic or the immigrant fleet, it doesn't really matter. They're still skirmishing. Um, I think it's you I think it's it's probably the immigrant fleet because they are the yeah. ones that made it here. And they're also the ones and, that disappear after this. Yeah, Utic is the one who is covering the vanguard. Mm-hmm. And all of this is suddenly over as a robot bursts out of the planet, like completely exploding the planet, like some idiot ass shit right here. Yup. Turning Milsha into a debris field populated by one galactic scaled wing robot <laughs> slash final dungeon. This is legitimately the last time the immigrant fleet ever comes up in the plot. Xenosaga 2, everyone. <laughs> Who knew you only needed a giant robot instead of a wall? And that's where we stop for the week, as everyone still alive is just shitting their pants, and the game is, do you want to save? And the answer is yes, because that cutscene was very long. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, like, my trajectory with this, it's very clear that Xenosaga Episode 2 did not think that Episode 1 was about giant robots enough, and so Episode 2 is trying to play more of the giant robots' hits, and... It surprised me that it took, like, three quarters of the way into Xenosaga Episode 2 for the idea of a Zohar-powered Gundam to pop up. And at first, yeah. when I first saw the, like, weird metallic angel armor that enclosed around the Zohar, I was like, ugh, this is dumb. I don't want the Zohar to just be, like, a Gundam power plant. That's a dumb use for the Zohar. And then, when it turned into an entire, like, angel butterfly planet monster that destroyed Milsha outright and was also made up of like weird columns of kneeling statues in a wheel that somehow becomes a giant robot that is the size of a planet i was like okay this is cool again also shout outs to how they just is ape like the most visually distinct uh ava shot with the, just the giant wings coming out over the planet yes yes uh uh, but then this is also, this looks a lot like the planet-destroying vision that Xion keeps having that then Angel Cosmos, like, combats. So, you know, we're seeing maybe part of a vision come to fruition. Put a pin in that. 
Yeah. Put a pin in that. Isn't her vision her fighting Udu, though? Yes. Put a yes. pin in that. Exactly. Yeah. If you played this on the DS, the Milsha section goes very differently because most of the retcons are Xenosaga 2 getting cleaned up to match 3. Albedo does not die in that version, and so as old Milsha unseals, he's one of the parties racing to the surface. He gets the lead, because remember how everyone keeps talking about how Mizrahi sealed a bunch of Gnosis in with the planet? They start ravaging second Milsha, and the party has to defend it. So, out in space, we see the Three Testaments all discussing what to do. Canonically, this is the first time the Black Testament speaks around his partners. It actually really unnerves the blue guy. And the three decide that blue is going to test Xion, red is going to intercept Albedo, and black is going to hold off Herman and Richard. You fight the E.S. Naphtali and the Blue Testament on your way to the planet. Uh, what's the ES Naftali? Do we know what that is? Is that like someone's craft? That that's, we know? that's blues. Okay, so we don't know that yet. Got it. Yeah, you're going to fight it eventually. But Hell yeah. Yeah, you've already done that on the DS. This is where they confirm the guy inside the stuck battleship is the X-Face dude, Vandercam, because reminder, <laughs> he was dead on the PS2, but he survived right. yes! the first game in, uh, in the DS, and he faces you in the sky in the Protodora from Xenosaga 1 instead of a crashed battleship. The Hell D- yeah. The DS game really goes in on the whole there is a massive galactic conflict going down around this planet angle. That's so good. Yeah. God, yeah. The 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 amount of changes to the DS version of this dungeon seem really significant. Well, I mean, it completely changes the plot. Yeah, yeah. completely. Uh you enter Labyrinthos, you make your way down, you do the Margulis fight. After you defeat him. Sergius isn't alone in the Zohar room, and Pelagri is at his side with the ES Issachar. You get a boss fight with her, and so this is why he's monologuing at you, is because he's like, I've got a guy right in front of you who can do anything, you can't touch me. Only after you defeat her does he just turn on the robot, steal the Zohar, and run off, because she bought him time. I like that change because it makes more clear the relationship here where Utic is dramatically smaller than the immigrant fleet and they're like support staff for their operations, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the last of the DS stuff for now because... Does that mean Pellegrin dies here? Uh, no, she, she makes it into the game three. I guess she is in a giant robot. That would be fine when the planet explodes. Yeah. God, yeah, I just... The fact that it does a better job of of foregrounding the whole intergalactic conflict, like the thing, the thing about Xenosaga Two that can be so frustrating is that it seems to want to focus on uh, the wrong stuff, or at least the stuff that like 
doesn't really seem to actually play as crucial a role in like the grand Zeno saga story as everything in one and three. And yeah, it's like really zoomed in. It's yeah, it's extremely zoomed in. And in that, like the galactic conflict is felt like we do have a few cutscenes of like, you know, thousands of ships being blown up, but they're very brief cutscenes of thousands of ships being blown up. And then we go back and do our myopic little mission again. And so it it feels pretty disconnected from the space opera side of Xenosaga. So yeah. I guarantee that a hatchet was taken to this chunk of the game. Mm-hmm. Because as you pointed out, there's definitely it feels like we've already done one. There should be a timed escape sequence from Labyrinthos. Yeah. Because we just cut from everyone has been knocked down to the Elsa is flying away. It is straight up two seconds gap. Mm -hmm. Well, so much was chopped out of this game that it contained enough backstory to make a whole other game, and that was Pied Piper. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, definitely a whole bunch of shit got cut out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, we haven't even seen the Black Testament in this game yet. He's a major character in this final dungeon. Huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... I I just, at this point, especially with one of the only... I think there's only three FMVs in this game. Maybe yeah. four. One of them just comes out of nowhere here. Uh-huh. And that's it. Do we have uh, any closing thoughts on Labyrinthos? I think I probably said it all in the body of the episode. This is the this is the best stretch of Xenosaga 2 by a large margin in both gameplay and also in like some of the story beats are just extremely sick. The cutscenes are extremely sick. I like all of this. Doesn't mean that I like the game. It made me think that I liked the game for a little bit. And then I remembered just how upset I've been over the last few episodes. And I, you know, tempered my overall feelings, but yeah, the DS version of this has to be so good because it has the Xenosaga one battle system. It has the changes we discussed above, and then you're still in the best dungeon in the series. Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to spoil one extra bit. That's like the, the DS thing does. That's really good going into this last bit. Spoilers. You're going to fight the Pope. Sohar robot at some point in this. In the DS game, they break how the ES system works, and you field all three robots at once for that fight. Whoa. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You don't Let's get go. that anywhere else. It's just like, yeah, why would you not? Oh my God. Why isn't there a good, like, available translated version of the DS game? I want, I want a fan translation of it so bad. Nightmarishly compressed. You should be glad that's not like that, Ryan. RIP to your emulator's frame rate if three ESs are on the screen. No, uh, for the fu- well, for there's breaks. not right. It's a DS game, not a PS2 game. No, I mean if the PS2 game did that. Oh, oh, oh right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> on fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think that's like one of the best things as a eleventh hour. We've just broken the rules of the game to allow for something that makes logical sense. Yes, it's I great. love that shit. I love that shit. Ah, so good. I Labyrinthos is where this game peaks because I hate the Omega System dungeon so much. Mm. It's got the problem of robot scale versus people scale and switching and back and forth. And 
it's designed well, but the plot is going to completely fall apart. So Labyrinthos is just the highest point. Everything is good here. And now we're going to meteor ride this fucker into a planet like a colony in Gundam. <laughs> Again? Yes. Man, get a, get a new idea. I mean, Char was not a creative man. <gasps> I'm playing the hits. <laughs> it's commercial time. Tell us your commercials. Matt's not here. He'd say, listen to the free anime podcast. Boku no, stop. It's true. I will say you can find me and all of my other projects at hellscaper.com. You can listen to some music that I make at soundcloud.com slash catastrophizer. You can listen to some music that I make with a good buddy of mine at canonandavarian.bandcamp.com. Check it out. You can listen to Ryan Nye's podcast, rebranded to Icons and Icons, uh, by visiting our Patreon at pitchdrop.cash, kicking it a little as a buck a month. It's this podcast, but about Final Fantasy XIV, the MMO still covering the end game raids very difficult and this won't come mm -hmm. out for a while but we'll probably still be doing it <laughs> that's all until next time when we'll be talking about the horseshoe system just kidding it's the omega system until the space-time anomaly save point uh also known as when you're locked into the end game great mm. can't wait to do a bad dungeon and then also a side quest wrap up yep we're gonna be doing yeah. the Hooray! non post game side quests next time i'm sorry Boo. Wait, you can't get the you can't get the big robot until after you beat the last boss? What is the point of that? Uh there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of post-game content. Oh, that's true. They're all of those super bosses. Yeah, there's like three whole extra dungeons. Hell yeah. By hell yeah, I mean oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Peace out, fuckers. See ya. Farewell. <laughs>